All right. Happy Friday, everybody. Um, hope your week's going pretty good and hope everyone's healthy and healthy in your household. Um, got some questions to answer here, so we'll, we'll get right to it. Um, I don't think there's any immediate um, housekeeping items to go over. I'm sure something will pop into my head as we do this, and um, I'll just leave that for the end. Um, all right, so let's get right to it. Okay, so I saw the new purchase of VPG you posted last Friday. You highlighted a few metrics on the blog post, but can you elaborate what more what made this company stick out, the company's industry, or any macro trends factor into pulling the trigger on this investment, or is it the numbers themselves that stood out? So, uh, so I guess the answer, to the simple answers to that is is yes, is a little bit of all of it. So if we go back and look at that post from from last Friday, uh, VPG. It's a small company, uh, which I like. Um, I do tend to like those little companies like that, especially if we can get a small growth company selling at a great valuation. Uh, it gives us you know, several ways to profit. A, you profit simply because of the natural uh, progression of the company as, they, as they're, they're profitable, they're growing, and they're expanding capabilities. So they're, uh, that's going to give you upside in stock. The valuation aside is going to give you upside of the stock as the valuation catches up to the growth. And then B, if it's small like this and they have good products, then there's always that buyout scenario that's always there. So, you know, think uh, ACAS, you know, PGEM that we had, Adams Golf that we had, all three of those got bought out. And if you even listen to the rumors uh, about uh, Callaway, that uh, there's a lot of interest in Callaway right now. And Jana Partners took almost a 10% stake in them. Uh, over the last couple of weeks, uh, they're talking to management about what to do, and you know, there's no doubt in my mind that tough Top Golf is a significant part of those conversations. So, uh, we'll see what comes of that. But already, you saw the stock trade up significantly higher, and there's a, a group out yesterday that said that any kind of deal for it could go for 20, 21 bucks, 20 to 21 bucks a share, um, which would uh, make it another very nice winner for us. So. Uh, all that being said, let's get back to um, uh, uh, V-Shape Precision Group. So they make sensors and sensors-based instruments, um, you know, the markets of stress, force, weight, pressure measurements. I mean, they, these sensors and, and they regulate heat and electricity are used in everything. So their market is enormous, okay? Um, what I really liked about them and what really got me going was Aside from the valuation, right, so the roughly 15 times earnings, which is below the current, I mean, the S&P is what, around 17 times earnings right now? So they're trading about roughly 15 times earnings. The growing EPS is 65%. Uh, cash, they're, they're cash flow positive, highly cash flow positive. Um, they have very little debt. Um, the current ratio is 4 to 1, uh, current assets to current liabilities, which is fantastic. Uh, profit margins are up 400% year over year. Uh, stable share counts, so they're not, um, they, you know, sometimes you'll see these tech companies will have low debt because they're issuing shares all the time, right? So, so, so well, yeah, you have low debt, but your share count's going through the roof. This has a very stable share count. They're not doing that either. Um, and like I said, they're, uh, they're, um, they're controlling their costs, and that, that's what I really like. So costs aren't getting ahead of sales. They don't have to invest huge sums of money to grow sales and increase profits, which means they have significant operating leverage. And it just, it just all fell apart. It's not fell apart, fell into place. 
Um, I think that they're trading where they're trading at now simply because of the trade wars out there. You know, I think a lot of these companies have taken a hit, and I think that's to our advantage. They're not seeing, and I did post a Q&A there from um, uh, uh, a, uh, an analyst at B. Riley uh, talking about, um, you know, the current environment, um, hinting at the trade wars and things like that, and uh, their CEO said he's seen nothing. Uh, he's seen, still seeing growth. He's still seeing demand. Uh, so far, nothing's changed and nothing's happened. So I think I right now a fair value for this, given its growth profile, growth profile is mid to high 40s, right? If you're looking at any of these tech companies, especially profitable ones, I mean, you see tech companies that aren't profitable, um, trading at astronomical valuations. This one's solidly profitable, has been for some time, and they're trading 15 times earnings. They should be trading higher, 20 times earnings. Um, and, and that gives you a nice boop in, uh, bump in the stock. So um, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a quality company in a good business at a fair valuation, growing earnings, stable share count, growing cash, and that cash can be used to, and, and negligible debt, and that cash can be used for various things, whether they want to buy back shares, initiate some sort of uh, a dividend or make acquisitions or whatever they want to do, they have the flexibility to do that. And they've done that in the past successfully, so there's no reason to think that they still can't do it. So that that's what I like. Those really, that's a pretty simple story. Um, you know, they're not a specialized manufacturer. Uh, their 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 end components, all right, have uses in in hundreds of different industries. So the 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 world's open to them as far as sales. So um, that's that's the basics on that. There's not not a whole lot to say. I mean, everything I looked at was positive. I couldn't find a single thing in that. Um, where I looked at it and I was like, oh, geez, I don't know about this. I don't know about that. It was just the whole story was just fantastic from soup to nuts. Um, when you enter a new investment, do you set a target like I want to make 20% return on my investment and then get out? Or are you looking to double your money in, say, 10 years? Or is it you have a valuation thesis and will exit once that is proved right or wrong? So I don't, I don't have a target that I want to earn on something, okay? Um, I'm looking for a wide discount to what I think the value is and then the other side of that is can the company keep growing so that valuation keeps increasing and I can just hold on to the stock right when we bought Bank of America you know we thought it was probably worth about twice at that time what we bought it for and then as housing recovered and as the company got rid of its legal overhang that because it was one of the the better banks in, in the U.S. and Moynihan, one of the largest banks in the U.S. and Moynihan at that time I thought was a quality CEO that the stock, the value of the company would continue to grow and then the stock would continue to go with it. And that's generally the core thesis I look for. I look for, like even with this, go back to VPG, I think it's probably 20, 30% valued right now based on its growth rate and great based on its current, um, uh, its current, um, uh, current valuation, but I also think, given the growth it's going under, given its end markets, that growth could continue. In which case, that stock price would continue. So if it went up twenty percent, and that gap closed, I wouldn't look at it and say I'm going to sell it now because as long as sales are still growing, how they're growing, my the value of that company is going to keep rising significantly, and the stock price should follow that up. So. Um, you know, do I look to double money? I mean, yeah, I mean, obviously, I'd, I'd love to double money in every investment. We, we all know that's not going to happen. Um, and the valuation thesis. So if the valuation thesis is proven right, that's not necessarily a sell trigger because um, 
again, like I said before, the valuation could keep climbing. Um, if I'm wrong, then yes, that's a sell trigger. You know, there's been plenty of times, and it's, again, it's typically in retail stocks, um, where I've had a valuation estimate and it just, I've been wrong. And so if, you know, that's, I think that's the hardest thing to come to the conclusion of, but it's also the number one sell trigger. So it's very hard to realize your valuation was wrong. Um, and the earlier you can do that, the better, but sometimes it's hard because sometimes your valuation could look wrong for a quarter or two and then be proven very right. You know, because again, we're investing in value stocks that are undervalued for a specific reason at a given time. And they can stay undervalued for some time until the market realizes they're undervalued and or the company takes steps to prove that that valuation, that undervaluation is not warranted. So you have to accept that the market is going to differ with you on your valuation estimates for some time until you're proven right. So that does lead to, at times, hanging on too long before you realize, you know what, I was wrong, the market was right in this one, the valuation of this isn't what I thought it was. Um, and that, that's a hard thing because you could sit there for a year sometimes in stocks that are undervalued um, with your outlook and what the value is and it just never reaches that. Um, and then all of a sudden the next year it, it catapults to it or a year and a half it catapults to it or whatever the deal is. Um, you can be wrong for a long time before you're right. So it, it makes it really difficult to realize when you're, um, when you're actually wrong. And I hope that wasn't too confusing, but it's kind of circular, but that's just the way it is. Um, I've read... I read Buffett books for investments he can hold for a lifetime, presumably measured from his younger days. Do you have investment that you've held for at least 10 years or more? Um, yeah. I mean, it's right on the, the website. So I've, and I've held, um, so if you go back, I mean, go back to G, go back to 09, right? So it'd be 10 years. GGP um, was, was an 09 and Howard Hughes has spun off of that. Um, I held um, Philip Morris for probably a decade. Um, I think I've held Bank of America's got to be almost a decade now. So yeah, I, I have no problem. I prefer, I prefer to buy stocks and just hold them like that instead of having to trade in and out and, you know, finding new investments. It's, it's a lot easier to sit in what you know really well, as long as performing and growing. That's, that's, that's the best world to be in, right? Because, um, you know, there's always risks involved with finding new investments and getting into something new and selling what you know. Um, because you could be wrong in what's new. So that's preferable for me. Um, do you still hold Ford stock? Any thoughts on it? No, I, I I sold Ford, I think, in 2013. I, as a general rule, don't like owning auto stocks. Um, it's a shitty business. It really is. Um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a business where it's a race to the bottom on sales price. Um, and I did invest in Ford and those guys in... 2011 that was after all the bailouts and the valuations were just you know priced for extinction in a lot of states i think i made i made a little bit of money on it not much um and it wasn't really worth the the aggravation i know you got you guys have so many headwinds with the auto market you got consumers want to pay the lowest prices for a car you got unions in the u.s you got international competition it's just it's it's a tough 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 business and um i you know, it, it would take a particular special event for me to become really interested. I just, otherwise, I just avoid it. Um, it was a tough game seven for Bruins fans. I think the stars just did not show up, especially on five on five. I'm a big Charles on who thinks playing along with Charles or Brady. 
Uh, yeah, Bruins didn't show up in Game 7. St. Louis is a better team. Bigger, stronger, faster. Uh, you know, Marchand had some uh, really, I mean, the, the, the shift change he made as the guy was racing by with the, with the puck into, into the end, ended up being a goal. I mean, that would be something if you were a mite or a peewee, the coach would look at you and say, what the hell are you doing? For him to do that in Game 7 of Stanley Cup, he just wasn't mentally in this series. Um, Bergeron was kind of absent, um, and, you know, Chara did what he could. So who plays longer, Chara or Brady? Probably Brady because he's a quarterback, and no one let, no, he's not allowed to get hit. Um, you know, whenever they hit him, they throw a flag. So, you know, Chara, Chara gets hit. <laughs> he gets hurt. Um, it's, a, it's a much different sport. So I think, uh, I think quarterbacks in the NFL can play into their mid-40s now. Unless they're the runners that tend to take a lot of hits. If they're smart, they'll take hits. They can play for a very, very long time nowadays um, because uh, just because of the rules. So, Which is why I don't think you can compare quarterbacks today to quarterbacks in the, in the 70s and quarterbacks in the 80s because those quarterbacks got hit, and they got hit hard and often. And the goal was to injure the quarterback and you hit them. You know, nowadays it's to you know, make sure you don't push him too hard and wrinkle his uniform. You get a flag thrown on you. So... Uh, what those guys did in the seventies and the eighties, and even the even the early night, even the early to mid nineties, I think is a a much more impressive feat than a lot of the guys do today when they throw for three or four thousand yards a season. It's almost flag football for quarterbacks now. So um, anyway, that's a huge um, digression. Um, so I know you've talked about HAC recently. That said, the market seems to be struggling with the company to generate returns for shareholders. Yes, they have some valuable real estate with some attractive development opportunities, but how do you see this ultimately getting back to the owners other than dividends or a sale? Um, so I think there's a couple ways. I think, and I've, I've said this forever, and it's even starting to get older myself, is until we can put numbers on the seaport, hard numbers on the seaport, um, what is going to bring an increment, incremental NOI I think the stock is going to languish here, languish because it is the premier project. I mean, yes, Ward is a, a massive project, but you know the retail part of Ward really isn't cranking up yet, right? You got the the condo sales are sort of, you know, spurring more building for more condo sales for more building, which is going to build up the population around there for the retail. So that's going to be eventually. But as far as large scale NOI producing opportunities, the seaport is the one. And it's the most visible one for the company. It's the most talked about one for the company. Um, so until we get numbers for that, you know, I've been saying 40 to $50 million in NOI um, based on the return on the investment the company is saying. Um, historically, the company has been pretty conservative. So I think you could probably safely think it's going to be higher than that. But, you know, their job is to set expectations they know they can reach and then please people by... Um, beating those expectations. So I think that's what's going to happen there. So do I think 60 or 70 is possible down the road at some point? Yeah. Um, but I think conservative is the 40 to 50 range. That's not included in the current estimates. A lot of investors think it is. Um, you know, so I, I think that's number one is, you know, going from a, what are they at? 325, $335 million NOI estimate to, the seaport starts paying numbers, and they say, okay, now that's 380. That's a huge jump, or 370, whatever they say it's going to be. Um, and that will, I think, spur a hell of a lot more interest. Um, they also, when NOI is above 350, um, I think they start generating excess cash. 
Um, and that becomes interesting because what do they do with that? There's not a lot of shares outstanding. Um, do they do a dividend? Do they look for acquisition targets? I don't know. Um, we'll see what they decide to do with that extra cash. Um, and again, that's another possible avenue. And then eventually at some point, um, holding income-producing properties in a C-Corp isn't the best use of that cash. Now, the company is working off NOLs. They do have a lot of upfront depreciation, right? Um, so, you know, while they are positive NOI, they're not a large taxpayer because of those, those two scenarios. So moving, doing a structural change would probably eliminate the NOIs um, and would sort of defeat the purpose of having them and the benefit they give, and that would probably outweigh, uh, in at least right now, uh, any any corporate structure change you're doing to a REIT to anticipate to entice investors into that, um, but at some point down the road, I do think that that's going to have to happen. Um, I don't know when or what numbers. Or it, obviously, it depends what else is going on in the company at the time. Um, so I mean, those those are the three three main ways. You know, in Bridgeland is getting cranked up, and you know, there's not a lot of retail in Bridgeland yet because you obviously you have to build the the housing units to put the people there to get the demand for the retail and the retail comes in when you've got about a third of your MPC done and then you start realizing more NOI. They have a couple things in there but not a lot yet. Um, but you know home sales there are, are going gangbusters. Summerlin's going gangbusters. Um, you know it's it, the, the company is performing right. They're performing well. It's a great management team. They're not stupid. They're not taking excess risks. They're they, they could be leveraging the thing up and building on spec like crazy and then the next time a downturn hits they're in trouble and they're not doing that they're building based on demand which allows them to to keep price which is always key allows them to to keep occupancy which is key um, because that keeps the price high right if you don't have too much occupancy let your tenants who want to live in woodlands or want to be in Bridgeland or want to be in Summerlin they got to pay the going market rate because you're building as the demand comes in. You don't have seven office towers sitting empty where they can negotiate rate with you. So they're doing it the right way. Um, the market just hasn't realized it yet. Um, I think that they could probably do a much better job of getting their story out there. And I do think that, I mean, they're not really covered because they're not a REIT. They're not a builder. They're kind of in this no man's land of who should cover me because the REIT guys won't cover them because they have the, the land building. The land builders won't cover them because they have the REIT and the home builders won't cover them because, well, they really don't build homes. They sell land to people who do build homes. So they're in this sort of no man's land of, you know, who's going to cover me and who's going to put price targets on me. There's only a couple firms that cover them. And I think that's, that hurts too. And I don't, their management isn't, um, you know, they're not showboaty. They're not promotional. And, you know, I think maybe in some ways they may be too much that way, which is, which is fine if your stock is fairly pricing in the value of your company. If it's not, and it has not been for some time, then, you know, maybe we need to be a little more in front of people. I mean, don't forget, you know, management, <coughs> management as a group is the largest shareholder of the company. So nobody has more incentive than they do. Sorry. To get the stock price up. Stock price up. So um, that's where I, I am with that. Um, 
doesn't sound like Calabria intends on stopping the net worth sleep in 2019. Uh, recent speech, he said, we continue to engage with Treasury to develop a responsible plan to end the conservatorships with, clear, with a clear roadmap and mile markers and to adjust the Treasury share agreements accordingly. And by sometime next year, my hope and expectation is that we will be on a path where Fannie and Freddie can start to build capital. Um, I don't... I don't. I wouldn't read too much into that. You know, that's a, a couple sentences from a a very, very, very long speech he gave. Um, and stopping, you know, stopping or declaring the net worth sweep is going to be ended um, is the news that's bigger than the when of it, right? So if they say in Q three, you know, they say in September, October, that. Um, they've agreed to the Treasury that the network sweep will come to an end in January of 2020. Okay? So that means Q1s or maybe Q4 2019 or Q1 2020s profits will not go to the Treasury. That's the news that's going to make the stocks jump, not the when, right? So whether, you know, three or four billion dollars go into Fannie Mae's coffers in, in October or February next year. I don't really think that matters as much as Calabria is saying if the network sweep is going to stop on this date. We've come to agreement, Treasury, we're going to stop this. That makes the stocks jump. That makes the stocks react. Um, you know, I think the only way that it doesn't happen that way if they were like, you know, Q4 2020. Because now we're into elections and things like that. And uh, that's not what's going to be good because then you're going to have significant pushback. Uh, from people saying, well, this might not happen, depends on when's the White House. And then you have a whole other uncertainty into it. So, um, yeah, I, I'm not much concerned about that at all. Um, and then there's another question. Why does the plan coming from Calabria seem very odd? He wants to recap and raise money, but at the same time increase competition. What investor gets excited when they hear the term increase competition? Crazy. Am I missing something? So... Um, I think it goes more to the overall goal and vision he has for the mortgage market, where Fannie and Freddie are players in that market, and that is why he recently, in a speech I put on I put on the site this week, was saying he wanted more authority for FHFA to regulate other entries into the market, like the FDIC does with bank. Right now, FHFA only regulates. Um, Fannie and Freddie. So obviously there's going to be other entrants, well that's what they want anyway, other entrants into the mortgage market that will do what Fannie and Freddie does and Calabria wants to be able to say, hey, I want to be these companies regulators too, so all these people are playing under the same rules, the same regulatory regime, and they have the same regulator, and that's a reasonable request, and all he's asking for is what the, F, what the FDIC has with banks, so um, that's fine. And competition is good for the consumer. So that may lower prices to lending. That may streamline lending. That may increase lending. Um, and if that does, then, you know, so you'll have Fannie and Freddie and a few entrants. Those, Fannie and Freddie will still be, by miles, the largest of these insurers. Um, It'll be a long time before somebody makes a serious dent in their book of business. So that's not a concern. But if it does stimulate the housing market, 
uh, which is running about half of what it should, you know, for a new home creation, then that's good for everyone, right? Because then there's more loans to insure, and even if there's more insurers, you still have a you still have the overwhelming dominant position in a, in a rapidly growing pie, which is fine. So, um, and again, I think it's only a huge issue if you're planning on holding your shares of Fannie or Freddie indefinitely. Um, I don't know where I am with that, obviously, because I don't know what the end product's going to look like. I know I'm holding my preferred shares thinking I pretty much have a guaranteed double, um, maybe a little more actually after with recent prices. The preferred, I thought my preferred was like the 22 range and a $50 par. So that gets me, you know, over 100%. Um, from here, you know, not only where we were, we already got our 100% on Fannie Mae AS and things like that. So um, it'll be another 100% on top of that. Um, I don't have any concrete uh, thoughts one way or the other as far as what I'm going to do after that event happens. Um, I get converted a part of common, the IPO, whatever the IPO at the stock. I don't, I don't know what I'm going to do because I don't know what the end entity is going to look like. You know, I, I can envision a scenario where after looking at the dilution that's possible, after looking at um, the way they're going to restructure the market post restructuring, uh, or recap a lease. I'm sorry, you just don't want to make anyone panic. Um, that I'm like, you know what? I'll take my 110%, whatever works out to right now, and I'll be happy with that. And I'll just let the small amount of common I have left trade because I have other opportunities I want to use all this money on to invest in other things. I don't, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't have any ironclad. Um, thought process either way because I don't know what it's going to look like and you know for me to sit here and say I'm going to own these for the next seven eight years uh, without knowing that would be irresponsible and for me to make myself do that or commit myself to do that I think would be irresponsible to myself uh, you know as an investor so I you know I that's I don't know I just don't know what I'm doing with those there was an interesting thing so um Oh, where was it? Reader Mark, uh, whose last name will remain anonymous, uh, sent me this great thing from Asset Back. And I had read it. I had I was on my reading list for today, and I hadn't got there. And, and he sent it to me and said, uh, I don't know if he goes Asset Back Alert. I don't know if you guys heard of them. They're, they're really reputable from what I know. And um, they've had a long conversation with uh, people who, you know, What's the, what's the word they always use? Familiar with discussions, right? Um, so it, and the, there's a thing he kind of cut out here, and I'll read it to you. Uh, Calabria indicated that as part of the effort, Fannie and Freddie would settle a number of lawsuits that investors filed against them after the 2007-2008 market crash. Those complaints stem, stem largely from a series of actions which Treasury took control of Fannie and Freddie in 08, and starting in 2012, began claiming the agency's profits. That was a net worth sweep. Shareholders argue that money should have flowed to them as dividend payments instead. While many of the lawsuits have been dismissed, some are still outstanding. Most of the actions could be resolved by making preferred shareholders whole, potentially via a mass sweep of profits. Fannie and Freddie stockholders were ecstatic at collaborative statements. That's exactly what we laid out when investors said. The goal of this president is what can be done administratively. You can see the focus on getting it done. So... Um, I, 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 you know, I said this from day one, and I still think it's true 
that, you know, there's been some reports on recently, some rumors that, you know, preferred shareholders will be converted at less than par. Um, 50%, I saw some people, 80%, I saw other people saying, I don't see how that can happen. I don't see how you can have the common continue to trade, have any value of the common, and not have preferred shareholders be converted at par. That's just restructuring, re, you know, chapter 11, you know, whatever you want to call it, 101, is that, you know, if, you, if, you have a, if your equity hold, common equity holders have a single penny of value in that stock, that's because everyone else above them on the food chain got their par. And I don't understand why preferred shareholders who are in court, and as I said last week, you know, with, you know, if they win, they get their par, plus they get damages, and they're looking at 150% or more of par, why would they turn around and say, okay, yeah, we'll take 70%. I, I don't see that group doing that. That group is highly confident. They have tremendous upside from where they are. Um, and I think you have to treat them at, fair, at par. I just, I just, you know, I, I don't know why they would do it. Anyway. Of course, you know, I guess, I guess the flip side is it's what? It, anything can happen. It involves the government. It, can, it involves the legal system. So there is nothing you can say that this is going to happen. But I just, I don't see why they would take it. You know, maybe they're offered 90% and, you know, uh, who knows? Who knows? And they say, you know what? 90% of this is better than we're still in court. Who knows what happens in court? We'll take our 90% and be happy. I don't know. Things, I mean, things could happen. But, you know, uh, you know based on the, the things I've heard and the people I've spoken to, you know, they're really confident that 100% is their ground floor. And they're going to get damages. And their damages are going to be another 50 or 60% on top of their par. Um, and that's not something that they're looking at as a hopeful scenario. They're looking at it like, this is what we'll be owed. And the government will argue differently, but... You know, this is what we're going to get. So, um, and if you're the government, flip it on the government side. Why would you risk the opposite going to court, right? Why would you risk that? And maybe having to pay par plus 50% more when you're trying to raise money. And let's be honest, you're not going to be able to raise money, that money you want to raise with people suing you, saying the net worth sweep is illegal, and you may have to pay shareholders back Two hundred and eighty billion dollars is that is that what they've taken out so far? And that was something like that. It's almost three hundred billion. So they're going to have to. The government's going to have to put these suits to bed before they raise this money, or at least come to an agreement to put them to bed with these with the outstanding litigants. Or it's going to be very difficult to raise money. These 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 they're seeking massive amounts of money. So where do we go from there? Right? Both sides have an incentive. You know, if you're if you're at fifty percent of par or forty percent of par, where some of these preferreds are at, you want to get to hundred. If you're the government, you don't want to pay one fifty, but you need to get rid of these lawsuits. So just pay them with their pay them with their owed. Give them their par, right? If you're the government, you you eliminate that risk of having to pay them more. You eliminate the risk of the net worth sweep being declared illegal. You eliminate a trial where all this stuff is going to be public, which is, you know, always embarrassing. And, and so even though this administration didn't do it, it's still just going to be a, a shit show, for lack of a better word. And it, it, just, it just makes everything clean. It makes everything clean and easy. Everyone's on the same page. Everyone's happy. Everyone's backslapping each other. You don't have a trial. You don't have the expense. It just, it's just a clean way to do it. 
give preferred shareholders their par. Whatever you do for conversions after that is what you do. But, you know, I just, I, it just makes the most sense to me. And I keep going back to what makes the most sense for everybody involved. And that just seems to be it, you know. And again, it wasn't this way eight months ago because we hadn't had any legal victories, right? We were still, shareholders still getting their butt kicked in court. Um, but, you know, the Fifth Circuit has one ruling left. And that's the bank decision down there. That could be huge for shareholders. We're back in Lambeth Court. And typically, uh, and I posted a couple cases in the past where Lambert have been, has been remanded by the appeals court. That typically goes the other way when it's remanded back. Um, and then we have, don't forget Sweeney. You know, Sweeney is, you know, they're filing motions to dismiss, a motion to go to trial. That's where all the discoveries come from. Thank God for her for that. Um, and she may order a trial too. So in none of these things the government wants to go through. The government does not want to go through a trial. It really does not want to go through a trial. So that's where I continue to sit with that. And I'll, I'll post that in this question. So I don't know if you guys have been watching, but uh, I want to talk a little bit about oil. Um, I don't know how long I've been doing this for. Hold on, I don't want to go too long. Um, okay, half an hour, a little more. Um, thing, there's been a few things on CNBC about oil, and, and all the people I've on, had on have been saying the same thing, that the market is not accurately reflecting the risk of what's going on in the Persian Gulf right now. Um, it seems to be ratcheting up. The U.S. is now saying they have videotape, and the Iranians are denying it. Uh, we've had seven tankers attacked now in the Gulf, plus a Saudi pipeline by a drone. Um... The U.S. is sending 1,500 troops are reports from the Pentagon. as the Pentagon wanted 20,000 troops to be sent to the region. Um, but obviously, um, the administration is hesitant to inflame what's already a tense situation. And the general consensus among a lot of the oil analysts is, is that you know, U.S. investors are too focused on what's happening in the shale space. And that if if we think it's Iran or whoever is behind these oil tanker attacks decides to really step things up, uh, you could see significant supply come off the market, significant, and um, we're not, we are not, we, as in the U.S. shell patch, is not equipped to fill the void, okay? At the end of the day, the Strait of Hormuz is the number one oil passageway in the world. It still is, and it probably will be for a very long time. Um, I don't think Iran will be able to close it, but they could, if, again, we're assuming it's Iran, let's assume it's some splinter terrorist group, whatever, okay? So the people who wanna disrupt oil supply, could they could do it, they could mine it. Um, you know, nowadays with drones, you know, we've already had a drone strike on a, a refining facility in Saudi Arabia. Uh, there's lots of ways they could disrupt what's going on in the Strait of Hormuz. And if that happens, um, we could see oil prices in the $70, $80 very quickly. And don't forget, oil prices started falling when this trade spat between the U.S. and China started. Because they're worried about falling demand for oil. Now, as I posted on the blog this week... You know, China's actually increasing purchases of oil from us, uh, not decreasing it. They're at some of the highest levels ever, and that looks to be growing higher. So, 
again, the market's worried about demand destruction. Hey, tariffs slow on the economy. The economy slows. Oil demand slows. So that's got prices down to the low 50s. If there's a trade deal, and I think the G20 meets, what, next week? And we could get some positive comments from there or, you know, something could happen as they were working on it. We're very hopeful for a trade agreement soon or, you know, who knows? They even announced one. Who knows what happens? But um, you get a trade agreement. I think the demand fears go away. Oil starts marching higher. And you have a real risk of the Persian Gulf of something significant happening on oil prices going even higher. You get, I think if you get a trade deal and you get something happen in the Gulf, you get $80 oil very fast. Uh, our DTO short will collapse in value, and I think that might be the time to cover it. Um, at that point, we'll probably be up, I don't know, one, one fifty, cent net. Um, and I don't know what I would do as far as getting back in or not, but um, I think that would be the event that would cause me to... Um, to, to, to close that. And I do think that both of those scenarios are, um, I think at some point they are going to reach a trade deal. And I think the potential of something serious happen in the Persian Gulf, I think is increasing, um, increasing daily. Um, I would not want to be short oil going into the weekend because things seem to happen on the weekends. Um, I don't know. I just, uh, things are being ratcheted up. The market's very complacent about the potential risk of what's going on there. And when you have U.S. troops doing um, missions with UA, UAE, I, I always have trouble with that one, uh, fighter jets and U.S. fighter jets training for missions together, the Pentagon requesting tens of thousands of more troops in the region and two oil tankers hit yesterday. I think um, it's only a matter of time before things start getting ratcheted up there. Japan's prime minister went to Iran, hope, you know, the rumor was that he was hoping to kind of calm escalations and he came out of the meeting saying that he did not, was not able to basically do that, that tensions are rising fast, that he was concerned of a significant event happening in the Gulf. So I don't think anybody wants a war, but you don't need to have a war to have oil supplies significantly curtailed from there. And that's all it would take for oil prices to go up. So, you know, we'll see what happens. And I could be very wrong, but, you know, um, you know, I, I, I do see a trade deal and I do see this getting on. just keeps getting ratcheted up higher and higher. So um, I'm going to check the email real quick um, just to make sure no one sent any late questions in uh, while I was um, recording this because I know what happened last week and I missed one. I'm 99.9% .9 sure I got them all um, this week. Um, Yeah, so that's it. So that's all the questions. So, um, again, send the questions with podcast in the in the headline of your email, and I'll compile them. And I'll do what I did last week, where I um, got the questions and I listed them <coughs> on the blog, so that uh, it's easier for you guys to follow along what I'm talking about, what questions I'm answering. Um, I know that's probably pretty helpful. So. 
I'll keep doing that. That was a great idea. Thank you, um, whoever sent that in. And if anyone else has other questions, concerns, comments, ideas, please feel free to, to send them to me. And if it's something that I can do that makes sense, I'll more than willing and more than happy to do it. Um, you know, this works best for us if it's, uh, if it's, if there's value to it to everyone and there's things I can do to even add more value to it, then, uh, absolutely I will do that. Um, that's the whole point of doing this. So, uh, don't forget the affiliate program. A bunch of people signed up and a bunch of people are generating some, some payments each month. And I think a couple people are pretty much, uh, on their way to free subscriptions, uh, meaning the money that they're going to be making off the affiliate, uh, subscriptions they've sold. Um, is going to be in excess of what they're paying for their subscription. So they're actually getting paid to be in Value Place. I think that's a pretty cool thing for somebody. Um, so don't forget, sign up for it. If you're not sure how to do it or how it works, again, just send me an email, subs at valueplace.com. Uh, you can give me a call, 508-619-4410, and uh, I will do my best to walk you through it and help you out and get you set up. So everyone, I hope you have a great and a safe weekend, and I look forward to next week. Um, I believe that is all. Have a good one, everybody.